This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. of the ASC podcast. Uh, today's topic is incredibly important and, and really timely. Uh, it's on citizenship and social responsibility. And we are really thrilled and excited to have been able to get some time with a very, very busy surgeon uh, who will serve as our expert today. I'm really doubly excited today because I have a co-moderator with me. Uh, throughout the year, uh, as, as part of the goals for the podcast, we would really like to highlight the importance of effective mentor-mentee bonds, and I think um, this, uh, today's co-moderator and Dr. Narayan have had this um, very effective mentor-mentee bond. Uh, my co-moderator is a general surgery resident and my colleague at the Yale School of Medicine, and very excitingly an aspiring trauma surgeon. Uh, he's a fantastic resident and an expert health services researcher, and I'm uh, going to bet, and now this is on recording, Mike, uh, that one day he will be a national leader, and you guys are all going to see his name everywhere. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Pei. That's, uh, that's far too kind, and it's an honor for me to introduce Dr. Narayan, who I first met as a third-year medical student while studying at the University of Maryland, but I'm now honored to call a trusted mentor. Dr. Narayan is currently an attending surgeon at Weill Cornell Medical Center in the Division of Trauma, Burns, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery. He's also currently the chair of the Citizenship and Social Responsibility Committee, and organized the annual candlelight session at Surgical Education Week. In addition to numerous degrees, he holds a master's of health professions education from Harvard Macy and the MGH Institute of Health Professions. His skills as an educator have been recognized on the national level and include awarding of the highly coveted Golden Apple Teaching Award for Best Clinical Faculty by the American Medical Student Association. Beyond this, Dr. Narayan serves as a selfless mentor to countless trainees across disciplines and at all levels. His examples of patience, professionalism, and caring continue to shape the practice and careers of many. And Dr. Ryan, thank you once again for joining us. Well, Dr. Duane, it is a highlight for me to do this podcast with you. Obviously, and I've seen you in your in your undergraduate training at Maryland, and I just hear you be part of the the Yale Surgical Society. It gives me great pleasure to do this with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing, as Dr. Pei said, your rise in academic medicine. And so, again, happy to be here with you all. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Mayor. I wanted to asking you to maybe share with the audience a little bit about what you do at Cornell and what really what you do globally. Sure. So here at the, at Weill Cornell Medicine, I serve as the program director for the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship. I also serve as the surgical director for our skills acquisition and innovation laboratory. It's the simulation lab, overseeing all of the activities of that lab for trainees in general surgery, but also in anesthesia and in interventional radiology. Very active in medical student and resident and fellow education. And most recently was I'm involved in in taking the Stop the Bleed campaign 
uh, for New York City, helping spearhead that. And and some of the and can you share some of the work that you've been doing globally as well? Sure. So my interest in global health. See, the reason I went into surgery and, and trauma in particular, and I was a fourth-year medical student at Eastern Virginia Medical School under the mentorship of Dr. L.D. Britt, and I lost an aunt and uncle who were traveling from their town, hometown to my ancestral town. And on the journey there, they were met with a unfortunate crash. A junk driver driving a large lorry truck front-ended their small, very small four-door car. They were taken alive to a small hospital complaining of abdominal pain. They had obvious extremity injuries. And the team took x-rays of the extremities, but never once recognized intra-abdominal hemorrhage. They were observed until they died two or three hours later. And so the eye could not see what the mind didn't know. That was the reason why I chose trauma as a career. It really helped solidify that decision. When I got to the Shock Trauma Center in 2007 in Baltimore, where I was doing my fellowship, I had the opportunity to participate in trauma training in India at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi. It's considered the mecca of medical training in in India. And so they opened their new trauma center, and as luck would have it, I was just finishing up my fellowship and started to go there every year to participate in trauma training. Now, I've gone there for the last seven years, and that culminated last year when the third ever World Trauma Congress was held in New Delhi. So you can imagine, you know, almost 10 years after me finishing fellowship, the word trauma is at every you know, corner of, of Indian care now, and, and so that's very exciting for me to be a part of that. Wow. In addition to India, of course, I was born there and I came here when I was four years old, so I have an affinity for India. I've done work in Haiti. I was the seventh team to go down after the horrible earthquake in Haiti. Shock trauma sent many teams down. And so I've done some work in Haiti. Every year, I've also gone to Chengdu, China, working with the China 120 which is their emergency response system. Chengdu is part of the Sichuan province, as you know, and they were affected by a very horrible earthquake, in fact, multiple earthquakes, but sure. have been going there going there for several years doing trauma and disaster courses with them. And so that's where my interest in, in global health really was, was initially nurtured initially as a a fellow at shock trauma, but also when I was doing my Master's of Public Health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health in in Baltimore. And, you know, the motto is so different. If you look at shock trauma's motto, it says, shock trauma, where life is on the line. And you look at Bloomberg's motto, it says, we save lives millions at a time. And so the perspective is so different. You know, as a trauma surgeon, we, we care about our one individual patient where seconds matter. And here the concept is, look, you can make change and you can make significant impact by affecting, you know, many, many lives at once with either policy work or 
frankly, taking basic training to areas that just don't have what we have here and how fortunate we are to have some of the resources we have here. And so that was my interest in, in global health. So fascinating, the amount of detailed attention you paid to even the mottos. But maybe we can take a step back and, um, and discuss Chair, a committee that you chair at the ASC is, is called the Citizens, Citizenship and Social Responsibility. And um, I don't know that many people really understand how that pertains to our world. And uh, if you could start that discussion of what, what is citizenship and social responsibility? Well, that's a great question, Kevin. I mean, you're right. It, it, some people are just, you know, don't have, or, or we do it, and we may not be thinking along those lines. And so we got to give credit to the Association for Surgical Education to, one, even come up with this concept. And, and the mentors who've come before me, Mo Shabahang being one of them, chair of Geisinger, for example, looking at what the mission of ASE, of having a global impact on surgical education, but really getting involved and promoting a platform where those who are doing work in areas, for example, that may have scarce resources or where access to care is limited or, and you don't need to do this nationally or internationally, it can be in your own backyard. There are areas and there's, there are groups that have lack of access. I mean, disparities in healthcare is a definite problem for the the U.S. healthcare system, not not only globally. So to promote a platform for where those themes could be discussed, could be fostered, could be nurtured, is the fabric, I think, or the essence of the Committee on Citizenship and Social Responsibility. And so for the past many years, you know, we've done this candlelight session. This is going to be our fifth year. And if you look at the abstracts that get presented there, it's many of the work that's been done globally addressing this you know, type of um, need and, and the work that's being done to address it. And so I think it provides a platform for sometimes you know, talking about off-the-beaten things that you don't necessarily hear with surgery. It's always outcomes-related or it's always, you know, did you make an impact on mortality? But what about the other reasons for for going into surgery and where can we have the greatest impact in areas that may not have the resources that we do. Sure. Dr. Narayan, I think that, that brings up a really important point. And I, I think it's generally agreed upon that the most um, motivated and idealistic members of any surgical team are the newest ones. Um, that our, our youngest trainees are the ones who come in and our medical students who don't have an understanding of maybe the limits of or the perceived limits of the field and social responsibility and citizenship just kind of oozes out of them and it's, and it's who they are. And I think there's a perception that some of that is lost as our training advances and we become um, focused on just saving that one patient instead of maybe looking after uh, the millions that the Bloomberg school talks about. So what do you think about how we can, um, keep the focus that our, our very idealistic young trainees have and help nurture that throughout our training process? Michael, I think it's a great question. I think that there's got to be a, a lot more work and emphasis done. And then let me give you an example. You know, it's well known that when students first come into medical school, they have an ideal version of what 
it means to be a doctor. Now, if you reflect back to your own training and how we started the Humanism Symposium back in Maryland, targeting first and second years, right? Because I was concerned that we were lacking the care aspect of healthcare and to drive home some of these concepts. We had a full curriculum, a year-long curriculum targeting first and second year years, talking about humanism. But by the end of their fourth year, data has shown that people have lost that feeling. The rigors of medical school, the grueling basic science years, and then the difficult and challenging clinical years. But by the time they enter into residency, many of them have become jaded and many of them have lost that enthusiasm. Well, what is the responsibility of the residency programs? What is the responsibility of program directors and associate program directors and chairmen to promote, to make sure that, you know, we are not, and you've, you, and you've heard me say this often, you know, I don't want robots coming out of training, right? And, and you've also heard me say that if we have the best technical folks coming out, but you cannot relate to your patient, you don't know how to empathize, you don't know how to connect with the human connection with your patients, then we failed you as mentors. And I, I, I firmly believe that. And so what can we do? Well, so as part of the Young Fellows Association of the American College of Surgeons, in conjunction with the Association for Surgical Education, we're currently in the process of rolling out a interview for program directors and associate program directors talking about topics that are not run-of-the-mill topics, talking about citizenship and social responsibility training and residency, talking about wellness, talking about leadership, and then other topics such as negotiation, contracts, other things that you may not get in terms of a, a formal curriculum. And maybe, and everybody's doing it kind of on their own, right? You hear about different projects and we all attend different meetings and say, we've addressed this aspect, we've addressed this. But maybe there's a, a call and maybe the results of the survey will show that there's a need for people to work on curriculum. Now, the American College of Surgeons, <clears throat> the education division under the leader, leadership of Dr. Suchdeva, they're looking at topics just like this to see how we can infuse this so that the product that we, that we finish is much more well-rounded and takes into account some of these softer skills, if you will, and citizenship and social responsibility being, uh, I think, amongst one of the most important of them. Uh, you know, that, uh, Michael, Mike, that was a really, I think, a powerful um, question and then a very powerful response. But let me ask something that may be a little bit provocative. This is a n nature versus nurture kind of a question. First of all, <laughs> Do you feel like, Mario, that citizenship and social responsibility is everybody's, well, responsibility for the lack of a better word? And number two, are there some of us who are just more, more likely to pursue and focus on citizenship and social responsibility? So then should we just spend the efforts and resources um, building the expertise in a smaller group of people who are really focusing on, on that? But, you know, is this, is this social, uh, social <coughs> responsibility and citizenship something that just comes with who you are, or is it something that you can learn as you progress through training? 
you know, both are, are great questions. And it's, it's, it's been asked a lot. Uh, number one, I do think it's everybody's responsibility. You know, we can't just say that, well, certain people who are ad- more apt to do this should be the ones doing it, and it's not really my, part of my purview. I, I do think that there is a component, inherent component, that says, you know, it's within my my innate thinking that I'm like this, and so I'm more drawn to it. So going back to the Humanism Symposium, people who signed up for that elective, right, there was a self-selection there. Right. They were right. drawn to those concepts and to say, you know, but and there was maybe 25 students in the class. Well, shouldn't that be required of everybody, Right. So there was yeah. pros and cons there to say then well, you lose the small group essence, you infuse people who don't want to be there, and so you dilute the process. And so these are the things that we have to grapple with. But I do think that it's a part of my hidden curriculum. And, and what I mean by that is, is that the way I interact, the way that you know, we want to send home the message that as much as it's important to take care of do the work and take care of the science and and all the things that we're required to do, it is part of my hidden curriculum that I'm making sure that I'm practicing that in front of my team and in those who interact with me. That way it comes up to the forefront. And, you know, modeling has such an important role, you know, in, in what we do. We we do it, you know, I, I am a product of the people who came before me. And I've often said that we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, some qualities were very good, some qualities was were less desirable, right? And we've taken the good from each, and we've kind of formulated our own way of doing business. And so, similarly, I take it very seriously that what we what we project, what we do in terms of highlighting these needs. It is something that I do think can be taught. And if it can be taught, it can be modeled. And even if you are not comfortable in that space, becoming more familiar, modeling it over and over again, right, makes a difference. And whether it comes naturally or not, it's something that if we highlight that, look, this is a quality or these are qualities that we're looking for, I do think we can make an impact. People will argue or, or offer a different opinion to say, look, I'm just not willing to put the time in because it's something, it's much more nature and not nurture. Right. And I just can't, I cannot inherently agree with that because even the hardest amongst us, right, care about your own families. And if you start to think about your own families in the bed or your own people, then the difference between mine and thine becomes a little bit less and you start to look at your people that you're treating as your kith and your kin, and I think that's that's how we go about it. Yeah, and you know, I have to, I, you have to assume that people pursuing medicine, no matter what field, have uh, some baseline altruistic outlook and the desire to help and the desire to be um, to to take care of our peers and to take care of our neighbors. I think there's that that's probably something inherent in all of us who choose medicine. Don't you agree? I do agree. I think that inherently those who choose medicine do have those qualities. I do, however, want to put a word of caution that as we progress in our careers and as we continue to get busier and busier and continue to rise in the ranks, you know, ego gets in the game. 
And yeah. we, we're always cognizant. And, you know, some of the things that I spend time teaching students, and, <clears throat> and Michael will remember this, is stressing the difference between ego and confidence. And that we want our trainees, our students, our residents and fellows to be full of self-confidence in managing a problem, in managing a difficult conversation, in managing death and dying, but without the ego. And I think if you do that and you stress that and you can show that, and we're, nobody's perfect, right? I make mistakes on a daily basis. You know, and I'll give you an example of this, you know, an interaction that just went poorly. And I, I came back to the team and I said the next day, you know, yesterday I spoke and the message that I was trying to deliver was not properly delivered. And so I want to apologize to the group. That, and let me rephrase what I was trying to say. And I did that on purpose, not to show that, you know, anything else except it's okay to say you are sorry, there was a less ideal interaction, and I want to make it in a place where they say, you know what, there was no ego in that approach, you recognize that there was, you know, and so there's a messaging that happens there, right? And so that's, again, part of the curriculum that I want to try to bring. And do I think it's tied into the citizenship and social responsibility piece? Sure, it's one aspect. But it's just one of those things where I think that, you know, people inherently do are good and do want to do good, and that's why they choose medicine as a career, but I do think somewhere along the process, whether the stressors, whether the unrealistic or realistic expectation versus family versus self, that somehow that combined with ego then dilutes that process. Yeah. Dr. Narayan, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we study this. You know, this is, it's referred to as softer science or you know, use the phrase hidden curriculum. And it, and it all sounds like it's difficult to really quantify the impact of a socially responsible and well-behaved surgical team, not only on the wellness of the team itself and, and our, our fellow uh, healthcare providers, but also on patient outcomes. And it would be my personal bias that a, a team that communicates well and respects members at all levels would actually have a, a difference in, in patient outcomes. But I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on that and how you think we can best study this issue? So it's a very good question regarding the metrics that we're using, right? And again, in any term of assessment, if we limit ourselves to the quantitative assessment, you've got some Likert scale of something, right, that says either it was very helpful or it was not helpful. And from there, you're going to make some assessments to see if there were changes pre and post, the routine types of assessments. And I think that for the longest time, the House of Surgery was focused solely on quantitative assessments. And I think that to help answer this question and to answer questions like these, that we need to do a better job embracing the qualitative aspects of assessment, right? What did the focus groups actually say? What was the thematic saturation that came from the interviews that we did? You know, what theory are we using to draw out some of these themes? And for me, to be very frank, I didn't know any of this, you know, and it was just a different type of learning. And although I always had a strong passion and a love for teaching, I never really knew anything about pedagogy or andragogy. I had no idea, you know, the, how adults learn. And having gone through this, this last master's degree, and it was very challenging, 
but it was very rewarding to to learn those aspects. And I think that qualitative piece, I think you will start to see more and more that as we get into more into the nuances of how teams work. And the reason I chose the Harvard Macy program and the MGHIHP program is because it's a health professions education master's, right? It's not just for doctors, because I do believe that citizenship and social responsibility also includes multidisciplinary teams. You know, we don't just work with doctors, right? As a team, every day you are interacting with nurses, with pharmacists, with physical therapists, with respiratory. So your team is multidisciplinary. So the reason why I chose this particular place to do my training is so that we could stress some of those intricacies between team building. And I think, so the qualitative assessments, I think, are what's going to draw some of that out and in combination with quantitative. So mixed methods approaches, I think, are going to be the best answer, Michael, to your to your answer, to your question. I was just about to ask you about research. So, Mike, Mikey took my question, um, but that's great. Um, so, but you know, I I would love to, Mayor, I would love to see the day when surgeons feel comfortable talking about mixed methodologies and qualitative research, um, because I agree with you. It's it's um, it's it's bordering that very uncomfortable, soft kind of softer, hard to quantify area that we surgeons just generally don't um, don't venture into. I was recently reading this uh, review article about um, socially responsible surgery, really in preparation to speak to you, um, and it, it shocked me how actually how little literature is out there about this specific <laughs> topic, you know. Oh yeah. And so, yeah. So the, it actually the entire article was a call for more studies. Um, <laughs> so. <clears throat> well, I mean, it's, it's it's funny you mentioned that because we uh, with the within the committee. We've actually drafted a a little bit of a white paper to see how people could actually do some of this work. And you're absolutely right. There's very little bit, very little on on this particular concept. Now it's it's blended into other topics, right? So wellness sure. gets in there a little bit. And disparities gets mixed in there. And so you have concepts that apply to the global citizenship and social responsibility. Yeah. But I do think that you're you're absolutely right. There's going to be there's a need, there's an absolute need for people to become much more comfortable with qualitative assessment and mixed methods. There's a need to address some of these things which, you know, we don't know. And you know, for example, as trauma surgeons, we could never believe that insurance status, right, predicts mortality yeah. or has an impact on mortality. We just we just it just doesn't makes sense, right? Except that it does. And so uh, so we have to start scratching our heads. Why is this happening? What are some of these what are some of the reasons? And it's multifactorial, but I think yeah. that as we evolve into these studies, I think we'll be able to get some of this data and shed some light on 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 these quote unquote softer softer skill sets. Yeah. Well um I uh I have a specific scenario I was hoping to get your opinion on, um, which is this concept, especially at the faculty level, because, you know, Michael earlier talked about how trainees come in very idealistic, and at some point along the way, um, altruism, sort of, cynicism sort of sets in um, as part of our training process, and I don't exactly know at what point. But I'll tell you, at the faculty level, 
you will hear a lot of faculty members, and I personally heard a lot of faculty members say that, listen, we have a lot of external forces vying for our attention. We got our VU goals, this rat race of a promotion process. We have administrative responsibilities. We have academic responsibilities. And I've even heard somebody say, go as far as saying, listen, we are a safety net hospital. We already do enough. <laughs> Right. So, so let's say that you're you're in the elevator with that person. What would you say? Yeah, you know, first thing you do is smile, because I mean, and I'll tell you why I do that. One is to cut the ice, because there's there's you're not going to be able to fix that problem within the thirty seconds that you have, right yeah. on the elevator. But I I do think if we're gonna, you can't we can't also expect to change somebody's mentality with one session. Right, and to say, look, you know, this is important for us. Now make it happen. You know, you're right. The daily stresses, especially, I mean, let, and let's be clear, the same stresses that are applied to academic medicine may apply to academic medicine, whether you're at, in New Haven or whether you're in New York. But right. if you're a private surgeon, you have additional stresses that you know I may not be purview to. So, surgeons in practice, whether in academic or in private practice, they do have many, many stressors. And the question becomes is that how do we enable ourselves or how do we be mindful? You know, in British they say mind the gap, right? Whenever you're undertaking, it always reminds me. And it's just one of those sayings that sticks with you. Well, mind the gap. How do we mind the gap between where we are in terms of doing what we do in this realm given the stressors that we have? And I think the more we talk about it, the faculty have had, look, varying levels of experience. These topics weren't around 20 you were just it was a different paradigm right and we say that you know the surgeon of today is a lot different and and many people will say because the training paradigm has changed we're more efficient than we were back then right we we have less autonomy while we're in training but we have more we have more accountability right so for example dr Scoia, who is my physician in chief of shock trauma used to say look i just did cases because there was nobody else around and that's a different experiential learning. If you go back to cold cycle, right? That's experiential yeah. learning, but at, at what cost? So my point in bringing, telling you all that to answer your question is that we do need to put resources into faculty development. And I think consistent and regular training to highlight this will make a difference. But as the old saying goes, it's very hard to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Although we can highlight, we can we can highlight, we can bring to the forefront, and some will lead by example. Barry Mann comes to mind. What a wonderful leadership role he's played in taking the ASC and in highlighting so, a lot of this work. Mo Shabahan, people who come before us who say, look, there there are people who, and these are people who have done the work and who have been highlighted, but there's many others who are doing their work silently, quietly, right? So there are people amongst us. Not, they're not, it's not just that you know, we're in a vacuum. There are people who are doing the work. I think we need to, to, to recognize them, to celebrate their efforts, and then renew our focuses for those who are in training so it becomes a lot easier for them to learn how to deal with those stressors and still be able to contribute to this most important aspect of care, and, and it becomes second nature when they're out in practice with either academia or in private practice. Yeah, well, and it sounds like 
it sounds like it might might it may be a, a little bit of a stretch, but citizenship and social responsibility ultimately affects patient outcomes. This is what we always talk about now, isn't it? Patient outcomes, patient outcomes. Now it seems like if it right. doesn't affect patient outcomes, we don't care about it. And I think that this is a big part of social outcomes. I mean, you talk about, you know, if you think about press gaining, you think about all these satisfaction scores, and and now you've gone down to wellness of the patient, and now you're including wellness of the team, wellness of the, so it's all interrelated. I just think that now we're we're spending some time highlighting a certain aspect of it, uh, but you're absolutely right. It is all related. It, it is all connected. And at the end of the day, these things have a direct impact on outcomes. Along that same line, but maybe taking it from the bedside and uh, expanding it even more, I think the, you know, the ultimate perhaps end of social responsibility and citizenship is societal change. And I think for a long time, our societies across medicine have called for physicians not only to be patient advocates at the bedside and on the wards, but also in political structures and the halls of power. And that that voice has maybe traditionally been a uh, underrepresented, i.e. physicians haven't had the the uh, influence on some of these political debates that maybe uh, maybe we should have. And among those physicians who, who have been at the table, surgeons have traditionally been underrepresented. So, Dr. Narayan, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you view that in a similar light, and if so, how we can expand our our patient advocacy um, to the societal level. I think there's no doubt that we have been latecomers to the advocacy game. I think that, and I call it a game because it's it's important, even though the stakes are very, very high, that the sooner you know the rules of engagement, the sooner we recognize that, you know, it's often said that if you're not at the table, you are on the table. And it's a funny way to think about it, but the idea here is that things that matter to us, whether it's the direction of where patient care is going or issues that you're seeing now in our in our society creep up, right, such as the 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 issue of gun violence in this country, right? For many years, our organizations, our surgical organizations, have taken a very, very middle-of-the-road answer. And it reminds me of, you know, I'm a basketball player. I love Michael Jordan. I've studied him since I was a kid, and I picked up basketball when I was a a third year in in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. And watching him throughout his career, but, you know, you'd answer, and there was a famous quote that was attributed to him, that, you know, well, even, uh, you know, this political group also buys sneakers. And he was very hesitant in his formative years to lend a statement that may be considered inflammatory. And I think we now, it is, and if you look at the newer generation of, of basketball players, the LeBron James, the Chris Paul, the, the Kobe Bryants, who are a little bit more outspoken about social cause. I mean, you've seen it with Colin Kaepernick, whether you disagree with him uh, or not, or you agree with him, but you're seeing that people are becoming much more socially conscious. And I think that our organizations should play a role, and they must, because these are important things that matter. Disparities to care is an absolute concern for us. Access. Restoring this concept of 
social responsibility in how we approach surgery and the health of surgery, we need to be advocates of that. And so you're seeing the division of advocacy at the college level take new heights, and you're seeing this trickle down to all of our organizations, you know, whether in the trauma house it's AAST or, or EAST, or in the surgery wing, if it's the Association of Surgical Education or the college, advocacy has to be a big part of what we do. And I myself have, have been, you know, very uh, kind of on the sidelines. And so I'm actually thinking, how can we participate more to be a part of the conversation? And I think when you're a part of the conversation, you can drive the agenda forward. Yeah, I, you know, there's every meeting that I see you at, um, somebody. Somebody mentions how well trained you are and how many degrees you have, and you <laughs> you have so much advanced training, and you're poised in leading really policy change. Like, what if you had all if you had unlimited amounts of funding, and you had to pick your top policy agenda item? What would that be? Well, that's a that's a great question, Kevin. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. For me, having seen <clears throat> having seen areas of this uh, growing up, you know, many of us have seen Slumdog Millionaire to get you a concept. But be, being being in the United States on a on a living here, my parents came here to give me opportunities that I may not have had growing up in India, and we came here for the reasons that the United States of America has such unbelievable resources, right? The open door policy, the, what we're allowed to do, what we're able to do here is not possible in many, many parts of the world. Yeah. On a similar token, when you travel abroad in the global health piece, you really realize the differences between the haves and have-nots. And I, I'll share with you an experience. I was visiting a professor in, uh, at the King George Medical College in Lucknow, UP, Uttar Pradesh, is the name of the, the state in India. It's the largest state in India. It's my home state. I was born in that state. It has a population of 300 million people, the same population almost that the United States has as a whole country. Right. And when you understand that the acute care surgery service sees about 500 to 600 patients a day, when you look at their emergency room, well, it's not really a room because the room is so full. There's about a thousand people on the ground outside waiting to get seen. Let me rephrase that. There are about a thousand people on the ground just waiting. Some of them are wailing. Some of them just or some of them have passed. And when you talk about you know that burden of of, of disease with the limited resources, if I had unlimited resources. I would tackle some of those sheer discrepancies that in 2018, basic access to care is not possible. But just our concept is so different. And I'll tell you, I came home to Baltimore when I was in attending a shock trauma a week after that trip to India. And my administrator, who was on call, saying, we're on, we're on standby. And I said, we're on standby? What does that mean? Well, she said, that we're, we're, we're completely full. And I was shaking my head. One person to one very large room, empty hallways, right? The concept of full here, it's just a complete disconnect. Whereas you were there 
there was no place to stand in the hospital, bed to bed to bed to bed to stretcher, people sitting outside, and, and you realize it's all relative, right? And so those, that's what drives me to do global health. That's what ties in the the public health aspect. That's what ties in the Masters in Business Association aspect, the cost-effectiveness standpoint, and that's what ties in the education piece. So if you were to tell me I had unlimited resources, I would tackle those things, and that's what gets me so excited about going back to India, to China, to you know, to other parts of this world that don't have the privilege of what we have here in the United States, even though I know there's still so much to be work to be done in our own backyard. Yeah, well, I, you know, my, as a follow-up to that um, to that comment about our own backyard is that um, clearly there's a lot of disparity. Clearly, there's a lot of um, uh, resource differences and uh, access to care differences globally. Um, but as you well know, and many people have published on this, including our own societies, have said that there are huge swaths of Americans, particularly in rural areas, that don't have access to us. So, uh, is the focus globally, or are there people? that are working, like you said, in our backyard? You know, it, it, there's a famous saying, right, about, you know, understand what's going on globally, think locally, or do locally. And I think that's a great concept. You know, you need not go to a developing country or a low-income country and to think you've made a difference, right? You can do that work here, and your point is absolutely correct. If you drive between... New York and San Francisco, half the counties you drive through lack a general surgeon. Right. You know, we've done work in India training first responders in, in rural care. These are laypersons. We've trained over 7,000 of them. And now if you think about rural America, you have those same concerns, lack of access to care, long transport times. And so here we're talking about rural America, the most powerful and wealthy country you know, in the history, and comparing it to what's happening in a developing country such as India or such as some parts of China. And so you're absolutely right that there are significant lessons to be learned for what we can do here in rural rural America that would apply to developing countries and vice versa. And I think our research is showing that. You know, there was a recent trauma study that looked at trauma training programs and how lessons learned with EMS in the rural western part of Texas can be applied to developing countries and vice versa. And so you're right. Let's let's not think that you need to hop on a plane to go somewhere to go do some good in respects to citizenship and social responsibility. There are plenty of opportunities in your local region. You just have to look for them. Yeah, really well said. So we could we could literally talk about this hours on end, uh, Myers. I'm sure you uh, you would agree, um, but but we do have to draw to a close. Um, but l- I wanted to give the audience members a a um, a teaser about what what to expect at the um, annual meeting this year and what's going to be happening at the candlelight session. What are well, first of all, let me thank the both of you for having me on <clears throat> to highlight the work of the Citizenship and Social Responsibility Committee. Look, I really do think that this is a unique offering, unlike uh, any other organization that gives you an opportunity to dim the lights down, have some wine or a beverage of your choice, and talk about things that uh, that make a difference 
and appreciate some of the things that are going on, sometimes in inner city America, in rural America, or in developing countries to see the work that's being done. And I think this year we have 10 abstracts that are going to get presented. The event is on Tuesday night. You know, we would love to see the room full to one, not only highlight and appreciate the, the presenters who've, who've put in the work, but to really showcase the society to say, look, you know, as educators, we are, and of course, the, the, the strength of the Association of Surgical Education is that it brings together surgical educators and those who are interested in advancing our profession, that we as a group are concerned about citizenship and social responsibility. So it is my humble request that for those of you who are listening or are going to read this, that uh, you will come join us on Tuesday night, the week of Surgical Education Week, and we look forward to an outstanding event. And by the way, it is the fifth year, so we will be highlighting uh, Dr. Mann, who initially came up and started this process. And so it will be a celebration of of the candlelight, and, and we hope to see you there. I think it sounds like it's going to be a um, a great session, and I uh, remind all to to attend this candlelight session, and really, not just because of the session, but because of really the importance of the concept of citizenship and um, social responsibility. Maya, I think um, I really admire a lot of the work that you're doing, and uh, congratulations on um, all the wonderful work you do, and I'm really thrilled that you were able to join us today as our expert. And Kevin and Michael, to both of you, you know, you all are doing such an important role and in, in playing an important role in spreading, helping us spread the message, right? It's through it's through different media venues such as this, such as our Facebook, such as Twitter, right? We're, we're much more interconnected now than I think we ever have been. And I think that it's through these platforms that we're going to help spread the message in addition to the person-on-person. So thank you both. Michael, any final comments? Yeah, Dr. Narayan, just uh, thank you once again. On, on behalf of the the trainees, you know, it's an honor to um, follow you into these exciting new avenues that that are being opened up in surgery. Um, it's 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 just it's a it's a fascinating path to to walk behind. Uh, and again, thank you once uh, once more for the support, the mentorship that you've given all your trainees. Uh, like I said affecting care at the bedside and, and careers. Well, you guys are the highlight, just like my mentors look at me and they, you know, I didn't realize what it feels like to see your own mentees uh, do outstanding things, but, 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 I'm, uh, but I'm a firm believer uh, in, in paying it forward, and we're looking now to you all to help to do what we've done and take it even further. And so I, I remain committed to you and, and, and now looking on the sidelines cheering you on as you continue in your journey. That's that's awesome. Meyer, before I forget, uh, at the end of every podcast, we always ask the expert, um, who, for people who are uh, listening and want to pursue a career in um, education and eventually end up in an education leadership position like yourself, any advice, um, takeaway home, take away, uh, messages for them? Yeah, I mean, I think getting involved, getting involved and actually following, following what makes you tick. You know, I couldn't do... We couldn't do what we do if it didn't make us extremely happy. And my job as a mentor, and I've told this to many countless students and residents and fellows, is not to have you do what I do, but it's have you find what I happen to find 
in my line of work. And if we can do that, then I think we've succeeded. And so for the young folks who are coming behind us, I think that it is our job is to encourage. Your job is to ask and to inquire and to participate in the process. And frankly, to push the agenda, you know, to really push it. Don't just be happy with the status quo. If you feel something, raise your hand and get your opinion known. And that's how things happen and that's how change can happen. Well, what a great close to our podcast. Audience members, thank you so much for joining us on this ASC podcast on citizenship and social responsibility. Please stay tuned and join us for our next episode of the ASC podcast. Thanks, everybody. And that wraps up another edition of the ASC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.